Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went in a rage. But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored, like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, and all, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god, but the Lord, in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, 
When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord, pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. The word of the Lord. We continue. If you're, if you're visiting with us, we've been in a series, a sermon series in, in the not well-known historical books, First and Second Kings. And today we finally get into the book of Second Kings, if you've been reading along in the reading list uh, that we had sent out to all of you guys. Um, today we come to the story of Elisha, or that's what we've been reading this week if you were reading along. Elisha is a prophet. He is the successor of Elijah, the great prophet. And Elisha is prophet during the reign of King Jehoram, who happened to be Ahab's son. Now, Elisha's story is one, if you read through it like chapter 2, 3 of 2 Kings through chapter 7, 8, 9, somewhere in there, it, he is a man who is mighty indeed. A lot of miracles and amazing things happen around Elisha. Some of them are very strange. There's a point at which uh, he makes an axe head float. Um, there's another point at which somebody makes some food with food poisoning in it, but he kind of clears it up. And then there's the very beginning story of him, like after he's been anointed, where he's walking along and a group of young men start calling out to him. They're boys, sixth graders is my guess. And they start taunting him, hey, bald head, hey, bald head. At which point, for whatever reason, two she-bears come out and maul the boys. Is a fantastic story. And I am not going to touch it today. <laughs> Strange things happen around Elisha. Don't mess with him. Watch out, you sixth grade boys. But Elisha is also, like all the other prophets in Israel, somebody who is a political figure on one level. He is advising or contradicting the king. In the story of Elisha, he advises regarding a war in Moab. Another time, uh, the city he's in is surrounded, and his servants are like, what are we going to do? This army is surrounding us, and he prays that their eyes of his servants will be open to see the armies of the Lord. And the, he, they see this amazing host of armies, and the uh, enemy armies leave. They flee. Amazing things happen around him re regarding political kind of push that he does. But he also does things that are just very pastoral. He meets a, a woman, a widow, who has a son, and she's about to lose her property or else she has to sell herself and her son into slavery. And he says, no, take that one little jar of oil that you have and start filling up every jug you have and then go sell it. And miraculously, there's enough oil for her to live on and pay off all of her debts. Another time, a Shunammite woman is, we're told, she's a, an older woman married who has no kids and she offers hospitality. And then as God brings providence through Elisha, she has a son. Later on, the son dies and through Elisha, he is raised. So he is somebody who is mighty indeed. But a prophet, as we talked about uh, two weeks ago or so, a prophet in the Old Testament, we have to remember a couple things. When you see the word prophet, you need to not think fortune teller, but you actually need to think lawyer or preacher. So in a sense, they were lawyers who were prosecuting on behalf of God's law, the covenant. So they would bring a prosecution of you guys are being idolatrous or walking into injustice. And they would bring lawsuits, essentially, verbally, against the king or against Israel itself. And their calling from Elijah and Elisha all the way to Jeremiah and Isaiah and the smaller prophets is repent and believe. Turn from your, your ways of breaking God's law. 
But some of them, not all of them, all of them do this, but some of them are also mighty indeed. And Elisha is one of those, along with Elijah. They are probably the two greatest. Elijah has the fire coming down on Mount Carmel. All these other things happen. And then there's all these stories with Elisha. But not all the prophets do these things that are mighty indeed. One of the things you need to think about when you're thinking about the prophets is each one of them is seen as the Lord's anointed. Now, that's a special phrasing. That phrasing, the Lord's anointed, meant that they were there operating in Israel on behalf of God. Similar to how in an ancient world, if you sent, if you were a king, you would send an ambassador to another king or to another country. That ambassador went in the full authority of the king that sent him. So whatever he said you were supposed to hear is coming from the king. And if you messed with the ambassador, you might as well have messed with the king himself. As the Lord's anointed, every prophet was a reminder that God was still operating. He was present in and with Israel, even if it didn't feel like it. And it was a warning. Listen to the Lord's anointed, because when you listen to them, you're listening to God. If you mess with them, you're messing with God. And in this sense, every prophet also is a, what's called a type of Christ, or a foreshadowing of Christ, a Christ figure, if you were talking about it in literary terms. It's somebody whose life and words are pointing to what Jesus Christ does for us. And this is exactly what Elisha does. Mighty indeed, bringing the salvation and presence of God to people by the grace and mercy of God in a time when they were in rebellion. And in our story in 2 Kings chapter 5, Elisha does this by not doing anything. He's a Christ figure by not doing anything. God uses Elisha to reveal himself and bring healing and salvation to somebody who probably shouldn't have been able to have it. And that's the story of Naaman that we're going to look at. And there's three areas I want to look at. One is the problem that Naaman was dealing with. And then the second is the solution for Naaman's problem. And then thirdly, the salvation that Naaman receives and all of its implications for us. So the first thing is the problem for Naaman. So if we're going to start in a one, two, three, the number one is the problem for Naaman. And to get the problem for Naaman, we need to know who Naaman is. In verse one, we read who Naaman is. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, he was a great man with his master, who was the king of Syria, and high in favor because he was the Lord, because because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, and he was a leper. So here's what we know about Naaman. He is a commander of the army of Syria. So this is like the joint chiefs of staff. He is the king's hand. He is the second in command. He is the general over charge of the entire army. And again, second in command in Syria that was a mighty power in that day and age. So we also need to know, especially for reading about second kings, Syria was the sworn enemy of Israel. And at this time, they were the greatest threat to Israel. During this season, they were the ones who were the power that were an enemy to Israel, and they were more powerful. They seemed to be winning a lot recently. Whatever they wanted to do, they were doing as the next-door neighbor and enemy of Israel. So he is the greatest general, the highest in command of the army of the enemies of Israel, of God's people. And from personal character, we read that he was great, had the favor of the king, He had had many victories, so that's his resume, right? He was a man of valor. So whereas a king might have attained the throne because his father was king, Naaman achieves his position by success. He's a great soldier who becomes a great sergeant 
who becomes a great commander and the greatest general. So he is successful by probably his own making. He's powerful by this point. His renown is throughout all of Syria. He has incredibly high status in a status-oriented culture and has access to the king. He is a very important person. But there's something else we read about it. He's also a leper. All these things, and he was a leper. It's unclear what this skin disease was, whether it was leprosy with the, the certain kind that's deadly to the other kinds of skin diseases. But in, in any event, whatever the leprosy was, he was socially unclean in his culture and would have been religiously unclean in Israel. And by the time this story happens, it's clear that Naaman is desperate. He's willing to do anything to get rid of, to be healed. And along comes a little girl. In verse 2, we read, Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So this little girl arrives on the scene. And who is she? Well, she's carried off as a slave from Israel. It was during one of the times when Israel, uh, Israel, kind of the border cities maybe, would be raided by the armies of Syria, over whom Naaman had command, right? His soldiers go out, they raid a city, they probably plunder and kill everyone in the city, take off all of the wealth, and take off children, wives, slaves. It's very likely her family has been killed. She may have seen it happen. And she's dragged away. She's defined as a little girl, which means not of age to marry yet, so she's probably like 10, 9, maybe 11, fifth grade girl, dragged off from her family who's all been killed or sold off as slaves. And she's now a slave in the house of the general of those armies. And she says, would that my master knew that there is a God in Israel who has a prophet who can heal. When Naaman hears this, he's so desperate, he goes to the king of Syria and says, hey, I need to go to Israel to see this prophet and get healed. And so the king sends him with a letter. So then we read what Naaman does next. It says, so he went and taking with him 10,000 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 reams of cloth, probably, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy, king. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So, Naaman arrives on an official state visit. This is actually like, this isn't just Naaman going by himself. It's a parade. It's an entire entourage. He's rolling up to, uh, to Israel, to the capital of Israel, Samaria, on a state visit. And he arrives in the city of Samaria with his entourage, his army, and an exorbitant amount of money. The wealth that's described here is astronomical, an astronomical amount of wealth. And he comes with a letter from the king of Syria. Jehoram reads the letter from the king of Syria 
and he tears his clothes. Am I God? Can I heal this guy? And he realizes this is a trap. Basically, what's going to happen is if he can't heal, if he can't heal Naaman, then the king of Syria is going to use it as a reason to go to war. Oh, you, you're too great to heal my, my best man? Fine, we're going to come and destroy you. He knows it's a pro- provocation to war. He tears his clothes. What am I supposed to do? But, you know, one question to ask is why does Naaman go to the king of Israel? Why does he go to the capital city, to the throne room, to the king? The little girl had said there is a prophet in Israel. Shouldn't he have just kind of entered the land like once he stepped over and then started asking, hey, where's that prophet who could heal people? At which point they would have been like, oh, he's over in the caves in Tatooine. Go find him there. Like they could have pointed him to where he lived, but instead he goes straight to the White House looking for the prophet. See, the reason is that Naaman knows how it works. Naaman is a political man. He's been in the inside of the cabinet. He understands how it works, not just in Syria, but in every nation. In every nation in that ancient world, prophets were in the court of the king because they worked for the king. They did and said whatever the king wanted. Should I go to war? What do you think the king wants? Let's do that. We think you should go to war. Prophets, soothsayers, magicians, they worked on the behest of the king. Naaman knows how it works. He's a man of power, and he goes to the man of power. And he's ready to pay the price, whatever's named. I know I've got to give all this money to the king so that his prophet will heal me. He knows how to play the game. He is a man of power. But the God of the Bible, he doesn't realize this yet, does not follow the rules of power and politics. He didn't back then, and he doesn't today. But Naaman arrives there, and nobody can do anything. Elisha hears about this and says, hey, send him my way. In verse 8, we read, And when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king and said, hey, why have you torn your clothes? That was dumb. Let him come to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel, that there is a God who acts through his anointed. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. So Naaman arrives with chariots and horses, meaning in other words, Naaman comes with his entire massive entourage again. Surely the prophet is going to be impressed. He will surely see who I am and what an important person I am with all of this army with me. But instead, a messenger comes out. And the messenger gives a simple message to to Naaman. Go and wash in the Jordan River seven times. Go dip in the water seven times. You'll be healed. Naaman does not like this. In fact, he really doesn't like this. It says in verse 11, but Naaman was angry and he went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not the Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. He rage quits. Why doesn't he come out to me? Doesn't he know who I am? Why doesn't he do what he's supposed to do? Prophets are supposed to respect 
the people in status and positions like this. They're supposed to do what they're told. Why doesn't he come out and wave his hand and say some sort of magic words and then I'll be healed? Aren't the rivers of Damascus the same as Jordan? Why did I come all this way, like weeks of travel, all this money, to go dip in your river? Wait a minute. Are you just messing with me? Are you just mocking me like, hey, buddy, have you tried taking a shower? Go take a shower. We got a river. He is deeply offended. He is outraged. He expects to be seen immediately by Elisha, but instead a servant comes out. You know, the the presidential motorcade pulls up inside of your neighborhood, right outside of your house, knocks on your door, and you just stay in the back room watching TV and send a kid out. Oh, you want some place to eat? Yeah, the Vienna Inn's great. Didn't you invite him in? Ah, it's the president. I don't know. Doesn't he know who I am? I come with letters, gifts, and a small army. He is deeply offended and outraged. But why doesn't Elisha come out and meet him and touch him and heal him? Actually, there's three reasons why Elisha doesn't do it that way. First, it's so that Naaman knows it is not Naaman's own money or status or worthiness that's going to elicit the healing. Secondly, he doesn't come out and do it that way so that Naaman knows it's not Elisha's power or some magic incantation he knows that's going to bring about the healing. Naaman stays where he is and tells him to go and dip in the river so that Naaman knows it is Yahweh alone who heals. It is the God of the Bible who alone can bring healing. But why is Naaman literally so angry? Why does he refuse to go do what's being told to him to do? Go dip in the river. Like, come on. That's pretty easy. Honestly, it may be just this. As he hears, like, go dip in the river, just wash in the Jordan, I think he's probably thinking inside, does this God of Israel have no standards? I came ready to pay more money than Israel has in all of its houses. I know how it works. Tell me the price. I'll pay it. I came ready to do a great deed. Anything you want, I'll accomplish it. But the problem is this. Anybody could go dip in the Jordan River. A priest in all of his holiness, a prostitute in all of her dirtiness. A king or a slave could go dip in a river. A child could go dip in the river. Does this God mean to deal with me the same as a prostitute or a slave or a child? Yes, Naaman, that's right. The God of Israel's blessing is not deserved or earned. It is given by grace, received by faith, and not performance. And that's the challenge he gets into during that part when he's talking, uh, uh, when his servants finally convince him because they're like, Naaman, stop being an idiot. They're a little nicer. They say, Father. And I'm going to read it out of the NIV here because um, it, along with every other English translation and all the commentators, kind of word it in this way, slightly different than the ESV. His sermons come to him and say, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? 
How much more than when the thing he tells you to do is go wash and be cleansed? Naaman is a man of rank and valor. He had won battles. He had been victorious. He was a general. He was a warrior. If Elisha had asked him to to defeat an enemy, go and kill the armies of Moab, he would have done it. If Elisha had told him to go on some great quest, like, I want you to go by yourself to the top of Mount Sinai and bring me the head of 12 wild rams, he would have done it. He knows how these things work and what you have to do to appease the gods. Apollo, in the, the mythology, commands Hercules to go and do 12 labors. It's like, He's supposed to go kill a lion, kill a hydra, go capture somebody else's pet, and then go to hell and capture the three-headed dog that guards hell. And if he does these 12 labors, Hercules will be forgiven and become immortal. Naaman was ready to do such a great thing. What do you want me to do? Name the price. Where do you want me to go? But to go dip in the Jordan River like an average peasant, anybody could do that. But Naaman does relent. And in verse 14, we read, he dips seven times and his skin is restored like a little child. And he is healed. Naaman had a problem. God provided a solution. But God was not done with him. There's also a salvation he wanted to bring to Naaman. In verse 15, 16, we read, Then Naaman returned to the man of God, and he and all his company. And he came and stood before Elisha. And Naaman said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it. But Elisha refused. Something has happened to Naaman that is not just he's healed. Because his statement has to do with Yahweh, the God of Israel, being the only God in all the earth. What he does not say is, now I know that your God is more powerful than my God. Or, now I know that your God is the one who heals leprosy. I have a God who brings rain, there's another God who does this other thing, and your God heals and brings healing for skin diseases. Because to just say your God is powerful or more powerful than mine would have been perfectly acceptable. It would have been the normative thing to say in a polytheistic culture, in a pluralistic culture that had many idols. But to say that your God is the only God, the one true God and there are no other gods, is the implication, was category busting for him and everyone. But what comes out of him is not just a statement of theological and academic research. It is the exuberant worship of a man who has been transformed in some immediate way. It is a man who has met God and is completely changed. Obviously, he's completely changed physically. His skin looks like a little kid's now and not like a man with leprosy. But clearly, even in his interactions here, he has changed socially, psychologically, because he's been changed spiritually. He goes from somebody who is demanding and assuming and arrogant, easily offended to somebody who is humble and grateful and generous and wants to be faithful. He relates to Elisha entirely differently 
because he sees himself entirely differently. He begins to see himself in the midst of what has happened through the lens of grace. The gospel of grace is a lens by which we are meant to look at ourselves and others. It is the recognition that we deserve nothing and God gives us everything, and that it's available to anyone, regardless of their status or their record or their worthiness. Has the gospel of grace sunk in in your heart? Do you look at yourself and others through the gospel of grace? If you still wrestle with needing recognition, find yourself fragile, easily offended, if there's still a a little grudge you're nursing, something that's been hurtful to you, you wrestle with envy and jealousy, why does everything good happen in her life? Or superiority, like that sense that like, I've got my stuff together. Then grace has not sunk deep enough into your heart. The grace lens causes us to say that there is no one better, nor am I any worse we equally are in need of God's mercy and grace. None of us deserve it. All of us can afford it because it's already been paid for. And when we operate on that basis, we see ourselves entirely different, differently and everyone else as well. Why does Elisha refuse any gifts? On one level, it's so that he is not allowing Naaman to trade in that old currency of like you pay the prophet, you get what you want. He wants him to see, to re-emphasize, God's favor cannot be earned or deserved, but it is available always to anyone. And that's one of the great beauties of this entire passage, is that the gospel of grace, the goodness of what God wants to do in this world in bringing healing physically, spiritually, emotionally, socially, is available to everyone, to everyone, even to you and me, regardless of where we are today. You know, Naaman, Naaman was the ultimate insider and the ultimate outsider. So you think about people who are insiders. They have wealth. They have uh, connections. Well, in Syria, he was about as high-ranking as you could get. He had all the power and money you could want. He had recognition from everybody. In Syria, he was the most insider of insiders. But when he enters Israel, all of a sudden, he's the ultimate outsider. He is a Syrian general that sworn enemy of Israel, who's been responsible probably for the murder and death of many Israelites. And on top of that, he's a leper. He's spiritually, religiously unclean. So he's a foreign army general from the hated enemy who also has leprosy. It's like, how outside can you get? But all he does is wash in the Jordan. And he's healed. He's transformed. It's actually sort of a baptism that happens here. Because something has happened in the midst of him dipping that is not just a physical healing. He now thinks Yahweh is all-powerful, not just Yahweh is the God who heals diseases. Now he believes that Yahweh alone is God. I think in part what has happened is he, an outsider, an unclean enemy, dips, comes up and he's healed. And in that moment, he's thinking. 
he's recognizing what's happening, and he's thinking, I didn't do anything to get healed. I just dipped in the water. Who is this God? This God knows that I've killed a lot of Israelites. I've rejected him, but he's extended grace and mercy to me. And he's struck to the heart. You know, this God will reach anyone, insider, outsider, enemies, even people who have hardened their heart. If you feel like I'm not anywhere near this thing, or if you have people you're praying for that you feel like are nowhere near, Naaman is the reminder that God will work on his terms and reach who he wants to, and no one is too far gone or outside or enemy. God wants the ultimate outsiders like Naaman, who happened to also be a powerful insider in Syria. But you know what God also wants to do? He wants to reach and use even the most powerless. Let's go back to that little girl. <laughs> She's an amazing character in this whole story. She has a little part, but my goodness, the seed of that is pretty powerful. This little 10-year-old girl, she's probably the most powerless person in all of First and Second Kings. She is a child in a world where adults have power and older people have power and kids do not. She is a girl in a culture where men have power and women do not. And she is a slave in a status-oriented culture. She is a foreign slave in a status-oriented culture. She is the lowest, weakest, most voiceless person alive. And on top of that, think of the suffering she had endured as this little girl. She had dealt with loss, probably abuse. And here she is at 10, having lost everyone in her family, a slave in a foreign country. The grief and the agony and the terror and whatever else she had dealt with, she had no future. She had no hope. And she probably could have easily had a lot of bitterness and hatred toward the Syrian army who had slaughtered her parents, destroyed all of her friends, and her family. And who would have been the typifying point of that? The general who oversaw it all, Naaman. And now he has leprosy? If it was us, it like serves him right. <laughs> if it was you and I, would we have been like, oh, I know there's a God who can heal, and I am not going to tell him about it. He can endure that because I've endured a lot. It's fair. It's justice. Let him die of leprosy. He's an evil man. But she believes in Yahweh. And she tells Naaman about Elisha. You know what she's doing in that process? She's, in a sense, forgiving. She's absorbing the pain and suffering that he has been responsible for in her life and instead offering him mercy by telling about Elisha. how do we know about this girl at all? It's probably because Naaman told Elisha about it. Like the story of First and Second Kings would have been passed on orally. It would not have been passed on by the kings of Syria. It would have been passed on by the prophets and their servants. So he had to come back. Naaman had to come back from being healed, gone back to Elisha and said, I've been healed and I know that your God is God. Let me tell you about this little girl who told me about it. My guess is something like this happened, and I am speculating, but Naaman dips in the water. And he's thinking at first, anyone could do this. I'm a great general. 
A prostitute could do this. A slave could do this. A beggar could do this. A child could do this. And he dips in, and he's embarrassed, and he stands up, and he's healed. And probably in that moment, he's remembering this little girl, maybe even remembering her village. And with tears, probably thinking, why does she tell me about this God? Why did she let me know? She should hate me. I oversaw the killing of her parents. Why is she so generously free? And who is this God who uses a slave girl to offer me healing? Who is this God? He's God of kindness and generosity. You know, Elisha is a type of Christ, but this little girl is a type of Christ, a Christ figure to Elisha. She swallows the pain he caused in her life and offers him grace and healing instead. Jesus bears all of our sin that we might be healed eternally. This God, this God is for everyone. No one is too much of an outsider or an enemy. No one is too small and weak that God won't use. No one deserves what God wants to give. <laughs> but remember this, what, what you need may not be what you think you need. How God works may not be how you expect him to work. But who God wants is you. Outsider, insider, powerful, weak, little kid. Let's pray. God, may the grace of this God sink deep into our hearts and transform our view of ourselves and of others and ultimately of you that we who are far off might be brought near, we who are broken in need of healing might be made whole. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You give life.